everybody. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to ask you to open with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 24. While you're doing that, I just want to speak to you just a second from something I feel like God is uh, stirring in my heart this, this morning. As we, as we go through this, this, uh, this time together this morning, as we move from worship to we move into the preaching event, I want to give you a challenge this morning. So many times we come as spectators to church and we want to be so lighthearted, right? We want to be encouraged. We want to be uh, lifted up. We want to find out about how much God loves us. And all those things are good, and I'm not saying they're not. But as we go through this morning, I want to give you a challenge. It's just something that God's stirring in my heart. I didn't plan on this. It's just something I feel like he's kind of speaking to me this morning. Would you, if you feel the weight of God speaking to you in some way, would you not just brush that off? Would you, just, would you just stick with me a little bit and would you just let uh, conviction and let the word and let the spirit uh, minister to you this morning and maybe, just maybe, you'll leave here and it won't be like every other Sunday when you've left here. Maybe, just maybe, God will do something in your heart that's different than what he's done before. Maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow's Monday morning will be different than the rest of the Monday mornings that, like, that you've had when you left here on Sunday afternoon. So I want to challenge you with that. So today we're going to continue going in Matthew 13, uh, or looking at these parables. Uh, where Jesus is talking about thy kingdom come, right? And we're going to be looking at these parables over the next few weeks of Jesus explaining to us what that phrase means, thy kingdom come. And if we can just be honest, some of these parables are just hard to understand. Has anybody ever read parables? Jesus tells these short stories with a point and just not known what Jesus was trying to convey, right? Well, the reality is if you read the Bible uh, like you're supposed to, you'll see that Jesus told these stories to intentionally confuse people, right? Like, and that, that kinda, it's kind of crazy because we think good preaching means you can understand what he's trying to say. Not in Jesus' book, right? Jesus, Jesus gets up and tells a story, and he confuses people, and he's like, if you got ears to hear, there you go, right? Like, if that's how we did it, y'all wouldn't come back. Y'all would just be like, oh, man, that church, they're crazy, right? But that's what Jesus did. Jesus told these stories to intentionally confuse those who were false followers, but the disciples, those who truly were his, they had ears to hear and understand what Christ was trying to convey. So as Christians, for those of us who are true followers, when we read these parables, they're given to us by Jesus to be, to be a form of reality checks, right? They, when we can hear these parables and understand them well, what happens is we have one of those reality checks, reality check moments where everything in life lines up and you just see things perfectly clear, right? Like, and the reality is we know, as humans, we know a little bit about what a reality check moment is. We have them all the time. Some are good, some are bad. The, the ones that stick out in my head the most are the bad reality check moments. Those moments in life where you realize, this is really how this is, and it's kind of like, yeah, this is reality, right? One for me that sticks out, and uh, if you've been married for longer than about two seconds, you know this kind of reality check moment. It's this, the reality check moment when you realize that I'm a jacked up person, and I married a jacked up person, and this marriage is going to be jacked up, right? Has anybody ever had that moment? Like, you're just like, this is going to be hard. I'm going to let y'all in a little secret, right? Me and Jenna had been married about three months. Like, my wife is a gift of God's grace to me. So when I tell you this story, like, you got to realize she's jacked up, I'm jacked up, okay? Y'all laugh because you relate. Um, We've been married about three months, and we had our first big argument, right? And when I tell y'all she was getting me good, she was getting me good. And she was telling me this or that, and I wasn't as sanctified as I was then. And I lost my temper, and I was reading this book, and this book was about this thick. And it just happened to be here on the, tra- the, uh, the dresser beside me. And I took that book, and I threw it. And I said, I'm tired of this. Y'all, and when I did, the pit bull turned into a chihuahua. And she cried, and she cried her eyes out. I'm like, why are you crying? We're arguing. And she says, you hurt my feelings. And it was in that moment that I had a reality check, that I realized there would be no winning in fights in marriage, right? 
Things lined up to me crystal clear. In that moment, I realized what marriage was going to be like at times. At times, it was going to be hard. At times, it wasn't going to be like it was that day at the altar when everything was perfect and and everybody was all dressed up and everybody was smiling. There were going to be days where it was hard. It was a reality check moment. Some of y'all parents know what these reality check moments are too. When you, when, uh, you get home from the hospital, everything's supposed to be great, right? No problems. You're excited about raising a child. Like, and you don't even have any doubt in your mind when you take this baby home. You're like, yes, sir, I, I, I can do this. Everybody's talking about I'm going to need help. I don't need no help. I'm, I got this, right? And then what happens is, is the baby turns about two days old. And you hadn't combed your hair in about two days. And then you hadn't took a shower in 48 hours. And you're crying just as much as the baby's crying. And in that moment, what happens is, parents, what do we do? We have a reality check moment. Everything lines up perfectly clear. And we realize this is going to be hard, right? This isn't always going to be easy. College students have these moments when they take their first test in college. And it comes back and they realize, I'm not in high school anymore, right? Young adults have these moments when the first car insurance premium comes due, right? And they were supposed to save for six months, and they, and they saved for two out of the six, and they don't know where the money's at. You know, uh, senior adults have these moments when they wake up and they ache all over, and all they did the day before was vacuum the house, right? Like, we all have these moments where life just comes together, and we realize this is how it really works. And when Christ tells a parable, when he tells a story, he is conveying to us reality. And if we have ears to hear, we will see the world as it really is. We won't have any illusions about how things might be, things are going to be this way. No, we'll see everything as it really is. The parable that we're going to read today is a parable specifically geared to God telling us how the kingdom of God works in the world that you and I live right now. So specifically, the question that we're going to be looking at is what should we expect the world around us to look like now that Christ has come come to set his redemptive reign and rule? So that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ came back to take what is rightfully his, and on the cross he redeemed that's redemptive, and he went back to heaven, and he's going to come back, and he's going to rule. That's the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of Jesus Christ. So now, though, Jesus is gone, what what should we expect the world around us right now to look like? That's what this parable is about today, okay? So let's take our blinders off, and let's see reality as it really is. Let's read it. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, if you got a Bible. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, this is what the Bible says. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. That word there, weeds, is the Greek word for a weed called darnel. Now, here's the thing you got to understand. We're going to come back to this in a minute, so remember this. This weed looked just like wheat, okay? They look the same. So remember that. We're going to come back to it. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, right? While they're growing, they look just the same. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skip skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now, I want you to notice something about these disciples. The disciples were not content for a surface-level relationship with Christ that everybody else had, okay? People who are followers of Christ, they go to Christ. They want more from Christ than just an association. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. The field is the world. All right, let me just make a clarify here, clarification here. I've heard a lot of people preach this text, and they preach it, and they say that this parable is about the church. This parable is not about the church. This parable is about the world. Jesus says that. The world that we live in here and now. And the good seed is the son of the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for telling us what this world we live in is going to look like, God. God, you didn't leave us blind, dear God. And as I was reading that this week, dear God, I just was reading how so many people just missed the point of this parable, dear God. This point of the parable is you're trying to clarify us what we should look like and what we should expect to see around us, God. And I just thank you for that, God. God, forgive me where I, where I fall short. Even as I stand up here, dear God, I know I'm just a sinner, God. And I just, I pray that, uh, Lord, I would get down below the surface, dear God, and the cross would be lifted high today, Jesus Christ, and that your name would be glorified and not the name of Dallas Wilson or Connection Church or anything like that, dear God, just the name of Jesus Christ because you're the only name that's worthy. And God, I just pray today that hearts and lives would be changed, God. God, I pray that tomorrow Monday morning would be different for somebody than it has been being, God. Please, Jesus, God, only you can do it. Holy Spirit, come and work among us now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so as we dive into these things, there are a few things that I want us to, uh, that I want us to see out of this text this morning, all right? And the first, and I, I told you they were, Christ is out to teach us about reality here, okay? So the first reality that Christ reminds us of in this parable is the reality that as Christians, we have an enemy who is against our God and against us. That's the first point. If you're a note taker this morning, first thing you need to write down is that we have an enemy, the reality of an enemy. That's the first point. Immediately in this parable, Christ draws our attention to an enemy in verse 25. He says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came out and sowed weeds among them. And he goes on to tell us that this enemy is the devil. Okay? The enemy sowed sowed weeds among the seeds. I can say with a fair amount of certainty, even as we start this sermon this morning, even as I tell you that the first thing you need to see from this passage is that as Christians, we have an enemy. I can say with a fair amount of certainty that most Christians, most Christians in this room do not pay the devil the respect he is due because of the formidable enemy that he actually is against you. We don't really take him very seriously, especially not if you grew up in certain, in certain denominations, right? In certain denominations, if, you, if the devil's mentioned, right, you're, you're one of those spook whack jobs who thinks everything's spiritual, right? And then you got people who are on the other side of the spectrum. You got people who never talk about it, and then you got people who think when their car don't start in the morning, they're like, the devil's out to get me, right? But we need to see a, a, a middle ground here this morning, and the middle ground is that as Christians, we, there's a reality that we have an enemy, and Christ wants us to see us. A few things about this enemy this morning. I want you to see, first of all, in this parable, you got to notice how the devil works. Notice that the devil works in darkness. Satan works in this world in ways that are not easily detectable. Did y'all know that? Satan works in our lives. Satan works in the world around us in ways that are in the ways that are difficult to notice until it's too late. Do you know the Bible actually describes Satan as an angel of light? You know what that means? Satan works in ways that look beautiful. And sometimes he even works in ways that as a believer, I look and think, man, that looks pretty good. He's seductive and he works in ways that are subtle and he draws us in. This is what, Satan doesn't do this. Satan never comes out and announces himself and says, I'm Satan, I'd like for you to follow me. Right? You know why? Because no man and no woman in their right mind would follow Satan if they saw him for what he really is. I got news for you. People who are devil worshipers, they don't worship Satan. Because if they could worship Satan as they really see him described in this book, they would run from him. They'd hate him. But yet the Bible says that our nature, it makes us sons of the devil. Satan works in the darkness for that reason. You know, notice that Christ said Satan sowed seeds while the servants slept. 
Now, that's not a knock against the servants. You know what all good servants have to do eventually? Got to go take a little nap. Got to get some rest if they're going to be good servants. This isn't a knock against the servants for sleeping. This is a reference for you to see how Satan works in the world around you. Even now today, the devil is working in some of your lives in the shadows. He's, he's uh, forming temptations that are suited just for you and just for me. He is trying to, to move and manipulate situations. To, he's lurking in the shadows, just looking to destroy you. And listen, I'm not one of those guys who wakes up in the morning if my truck don't start blaming on Satan. Sometimes your battery's just dead, Right? But what we got to realize is that we got to give some credit where credit's due. And as Christians, we see in the Bible that we have an enemy who is out to steal, kill, and destroy us. We can't be oblivious to the fact that Satan's working in the darkness, even if we can't see it. Another thing that we need to see about, notice about the devil this morning is noticing the devil that he, notice in this parable, the devil not only works in darkness, but get this, he has a goal to sabotage the works of Christ. In the, in the parable, the enemy had a goal to ruin the profit of the master. Did you catch that? And this was actually a common practice in the old days. I was, as I was preparing this week, I, I found out that there was an actual Roman law against this. They, this was so common that they had to make a law against it because what you would do is if I was a landowner and you were a landowner and I didn't like you, I would go to your land right after you had sowed the seed and I would spread some seed of weeds out there and then guess what might happen? I might ruin your harvest and guess what happens when you don't have a harvest and I do? Who has the power in that relationship? Me, right? And so the, the devil in this, in this parable, Christ is trying to teach us that we have an enemy who is out to sabotage the work of God. And that means he's out to sabotage the work of God in our lives. Everything God is doing in this world to advance his glory, the devil is actively working against. And can I tell you something? This is why as Christians, it's hard for us to live a life that is on mission for God. Have any of y'all ever left church on Sunday morning and you think, I felt God speaking to me today? And I know that there are some things in my life I need to change. So this week, I'm going to try my best. I'm not going to try my best. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to want to know Christ. I want to know him. And I'm going to try to tell that coworker that works with me, I'm going to try to invite them to, cry, to, invite them to church and tell them about Christ. And then you leave, and guess what happens? Monday morning comes around, and you wake up 20 minutes late, and your co-worker's mad at you because you didn't return the coffee mug, right? So guess what? Everything that you were working towards, it just seems like miraculously it's working back against you. And what we've got to see is that sometimes we have an enemy who is at work against everything God is doing in this world to advance his glory. And can I, can I just be honest with you here? This is where I struggle so many times. I, I'm shocked a lot of the times when I, when I want to spend time with God, when I want to follow Christ, when I want to tell other people about Christ and show people the love of Christ, I just expect things to be easy. I just expect everything, like I expect the birds to open doors for me like they do in Disney movies. And I expect for people to come up to me and ask, tell me about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've been dying to submit to him, right? Like I, in my mind, I am so spiritually immature at times that I think that's how it's going to work. But how foolish is that? How many people have ever been in a fight and the man on the other side of the fight laid down? We have an enemy who is at work against us at all times. And let me just make you understand this. When you want to live on mission for God, you are putting a bullseye on your back. I want you to rest assured of this. The devil is not very much concerned about you if you are content to come to church here every Sunday and leave and never change anything in your life and never live for Jesus and never read your Bible and never pray and never pursue the face of Christ. The devil is not concerned about you in the least. You know why? Because you are not a threat to him in this battle. But when we put on the armor of God and when we get ready for action, you know what happens? Satan sees us, and he targets us because he realizes we're a threat in this battle. Rest assured, Christians, the devil's out to destroy you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. We just, we just spent a few weeks going through the book of 1 Peter. Y'all remember that? One of, the, one of the focal 
points of that passage is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It says, uh, be watchful, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, roams around, roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. devour. You get what the Bible's saying there? The devil is roaming around like a lion seeking someone to destroy. That passage starts off with this, though. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. You know what that means? Wake up. As Christians, the most important thing some of us could do today is wake up to the reality that we have a very real enemy and we are in a very real battle. Because the reality is when I look out at church on Sunday morning, listen, I'm not being judgmental. I love you. I pray for you. I want you to walk in the ways of Christ. I want you to be obedient to him and I want your life to be changed because of it. But when I look out on Sunday morning sometimes, what I see is a bunch of people who are living life as if they're on a stroll through the park instead of a war zone. I need you to understand this morning that Christian faith is a fight to believe in and be obedient to Jesus Christ. It's a fight. Go read the New Testament. You want me to tell you what you'll find a lot of? A lot of war language. Kill sin. Slay the enemy. The enemy wants to devour you. It's a lot of grotesque war language. The Christian fight is a the Christian faith is a fight to destroy sin in our own lives. Rest assured, if you have a sin that you are struggling with, it will not go quietly into that good night. It will peek and poke and find its way out to have you at any way possible. What's Genesis chapter 4 say? Sin is lurking at the door at all times, seeking to devour you. The Christian faith is a fight to trust Christ to guide our lives, even when he wants to go in what seems to us to be a crazy direction. I'm pleading with you today, wake up. Wake up, even as we start this. You have an enemy. Wake up and realize you're in a fight. No one who goes into a battle goes unprepared. I love history. I don't know if if anybody in here is a history buff. I love history, and I've always loved uh, the German theater of World War II. Man, it just, I don't, something about the people who went and opposed evil in like the most wicked form imaginable. Like, I just, I love it. I can't get enough of it. And this week I heard, an illustration about this, uh, about the Christian fighters of fight of faith in this vein. It's talking about D-Day. It's talking about people who were prepared to land on the beaches of Normandy at D-Day. Everybody know what D-Day is? June 6, 1944, right? America went back and started uh, kicking some butt because that's what we do, right? America. Some patriots in here. On June 6, 1944, the, D- the landing boats that were going on the beaches of Normandy they had speakers on them, and as they got to, toward the beaches, especially of beaches like Torton, uh, Omaha, where the, where the fighting was the fiercest, they echoed things like this. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you have any strength left, fight to save yourself. Another one said this. We may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Another one said, this is it, pick it up, put it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. As those ships landed, the men there knew they were in a battle. Let me assure you of something. No one died on the beaches of France that day thinking they were going on a field trip. But yet, we have Christians falling out all over the place because they think life's a stroll in the park and not a battle against the enemy of the devil. And that might have been the most significant battle ever fought. If you ask me, I think it probably was. But what you got to realize as a Christian today is that we are fighting a battle of far more significance. We are fighting a battle for eternity and for our souls. And may when Christ returns, we not be found sleeping. First thing you got to see this morning is that we have the reality of an enemy. Second thing I want you to see is the importance of a fruit. And let, let me be honest, as I prepared this week, this is where God ministered to me the most. So I pray that as I preach, you would just feel the weight of the word in this moment. So, so the parable of Christ teaches about the reality of the enemy. The next thing he teaches us is the importance of fruit. As Christ tells the parable, he gives us some vital information about the, the importance of fruit. Look at verse 26. It says, so when the plants came up and bore grain, Then the weeds appeared also. Did you catch what happened there? While the plants were growing, nobody could tell what was what. Everybody thought it was wheat. Why? Because what did I tell you earlier? Those plants looked the same until 
they bore grain. Here's what I want you to see. Christ teaches us that fruit is important because the fruit of a plant reveals the nature of a plant. Does that make sense? The fruit of a plant uh, exposes what the plant is. If I see a tree with apples on it, I can rightly assume that it is most likely an apple tree. Likewise, when these plants in this parable produced their fruit or their yield, they bore grain, it was exposed that some of these plants were weeds and some of them were wheat. In this parable, though, Jesus tells us that the weeds and the wheat are humans. So what Jesus is doing is he's laying out two kinds of people for us. And naturally, what Christ would have us ask ourselves is, what kind of plant are we? See, Christ lays this out, and it's a test for you to examine yourself. What kind of fruits are we producing? Does the fruit in our lives reveal that we are sons of God, wheat, or sons of the devil, weeds? This is meant for us to test ourselves. Galatians 5 talks a lot about the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. And I think it would be a good place for us to test ourselves this morning. So let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And this is what the Bible says. We're going to read 19 through 21, then we're going to take a short break. If you've got a Bible, go there. So it's important that you see what I'm saying here. The 19, 519 says this. Now the works of the flesh... That, let's, let's exchange that word works for fruit. You'll see why I'm doing that in just a second. It means the same, it's the same thing essentially in what I'm going for. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is an important verse. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen, when we hear a list of traits like this, human tendency is to distance yourself from them and think, well, I might might struggle with some of those things, but I'm not really any of those things. Like, Just because I struggle with something doesn't make me like that. I'm not really defined by that. That's that's, that's human tendency. We recall from something that we hear like that. So we push back. However, I want to challenge you like I challenged you earlier today when I first started. Don't run from this. This is a matter of internal importance. Let's sit on this. Think about this. Examine yourself. Ask yourself. Look closely and see how much these things describe you. Look at the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, lustfulness. Many of us can be described by this if we're honest. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, lustfulness. In fact, we seem to be living in a society that seems to have cast off any sort of sexual ethic if we're honest. Sexual ethic, what is that? The world today says have sex when you want, with who you want, as much as you want. With total disregard to God and the institution of marriage. And now, I know I'm hitting close to home on some of this because as big as, as, big as our church is and as rampant as, is, as rampant as this is in our society, I know I'm touching close here, all right? So let this sit on you. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. How about idolatry? That's the next one on the list. How many of us put other things before God constantly? Well, my kids got T-ball. I got to sleep a little bit later. I didn't get to read my Bible this morning because I was running behind. Uh, We can't do it on Wednesday nights because we got this. I can't do it on Thursday nights because I got this. Something all the time before God, every week, every day. That's idolatry. How about the next one? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy. Let Let me say this, and I say this, I pray out of a heart of wisdom. Some of you haven't been able to get along with people your whole life, and it's always been someone else's fault. If your whole life you have been struggling with things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and envy, you don't need to keep looking at other people. Keep going through the list. Drunkenness. Speaks for itself. How many of you, let's be honest, how many of you have been drunk in the past year? 
I know, like, we don't like to single out specific things, do we? Like, we, you talk about sin in general, don't be too direct. But let me, I know I'm not a fool. A lot of you think this is too direct. If we have the courage, though, to be honest and examine the fruit in our lives, many of us will find these things to be true of us. They will describe us. Our fruit is rotten. And there's nothing I can be here but direct. The Bible says if you live this way, you go to hell. It doesn't say if you live this way and you go to church, you don't go to hell. The Bible says if these things are who you are, you go to hell. And I say that not out of a spirit of anger. I say that out of a spirit of compassion. Please see these things in your heart and turn from them. Paul, shows, Paul also shows us what the good fruit is, though, and this is where we really need to zone in, too. Do these things describe us? If I call myself a Christian, do I live in these things? Let's think about them here. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Sons and daughters of God produce fruits and produce works that are directly in opposition to the works of the flesh. Instead of constantly living in strife, they show people love, kindness, gentleness, and patience. I, can I just tell you all, I saw an example of this in somebody the other night. And it, I, they know this story before I'm even tell it because they're here. They're in my connect group. We went, to, we went out to eat at a, at a restaurant. And the food was amazing. The food was great. And can I just tell you that as a connect group, that's the only thing that saved our night was the food because everything else was just falling apart from the time we got there. And the, we had a waiter, and he seemed like a nice guy. He might, I don't think he meant any ill will. But during the course of the night, the waiter took straws, and he started throwing them at a guy in our connect group. And he threw one, and he threw two, and he threw three, and I kid you not, he probably threw 15. And in my mind, I literally put my head down. I was like, oh my gosh, this is about to be really, really bad. Because men, let's be honest, you go to a restaurant and somebody starts throwing some stuff at you, what's going to happen? I told my wife when we left, praise God he didn't throw them at me because I don't know if I'm strong enough yet, right? And he's, <laughs> the guy took it. The guy was just like, man, you know, and he, he just kind of played it off and rolled with it, and I was like, I was preparing for this message, and I thought, that's patience. That's, that's the work of the Spirit, because Spirit-filled people don't respond in the way the people in the world respond. They, they, they respond differently. They show love, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Instead of hostility like the people of the world have, they have joy, goodness, and peace. Instead of moving from one sexual partner to another, they are faithful to one person. Instead of sleeping around and getting drunk, they have self-control. These are the works of the Spirit. Why do people have these? Why does this describe some people? Why do some people live like this? Because the Spirit of God in them is producing works that glorify not themselves, but glorify God. And they have decided to die to God and die to the flesh and live for God. It doesn't mean they, doesn't mean they don't still struggle sometimes with these things. It doesn't mean that they don't still have an occasional desire to run back the other way, but in their heart of hearts, they would rather please God than please themselves. Fruit is important because it, it, it's how we live our lives to glorify God. I want to share with you John 15, verse 8, and this is not going to be on the screen. This is something God just brought to my attention this morning. John 15, verse 8 says, This, this glorifies my God, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So how is God glorified in my life? It's not because I can get up here and preach. It's not because I, I, uh, I'm a good person, I'm a good dad. God is glorified in my life when the works of the Spirit bubble up out of me and I show the traits of Christ to those around me because what describes Christ better than this? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That don't describe me. Who does that describe? Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is living in me, you know what other people see in me? Jesus Christ. And God's glorified. Fruit is important because it reveals the true nature. It's also important because it exposes the fake. Now, I told you that in this, in this parable, that Jesus used a word for weeds that was called darnel. Darnel is a plant that looks just like weeds. Some of y'all might have some kind of experience with it if you're a farmer. I don't know. I had to look up how to pronounce it, so it shows you what I know. 
But as, as I got to looking, looking up and looking at this plant, looking, searching through this word, it's actually indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the wheat until the head is produced. And then when the wheat ripens and bears grain, the wheat is brown and the darnel's black. And so what can you obviously tell at that point? That some of these are weeds and some of this is wheat. The point in that is this. Some of you have made a practice of looking like a Christian without actually being a Christian. You come to church, you go to small group, but there has been no heart change. And the inside of your heart still is still described by the fruits of the flesh, not the fruits of the spirit. Your fruit exposes you as false. Because here's what I want you to understand. Your life is bearing fruit, whether you want it to or not. You are producing fruit from the way you live your life day in and day out. And it either exposes you as a follower of Christ or as a fake. Listen, I'm pleading with some of you this morning. Don't die thinking you're wheat when you're a weed. Don't come to church so much and convince yourself so much that when the altar time calls, you just you, you, you sit a little tighter and you, you just bear and grin it because you know God's telling you you're not right, you're fake. Come down here, go pray, plead, plead with me to save you and I'll save you. And you just you get a little tighter. Why? Because you've been a weed so long, you don't know what it would be like to be wheat. Don't die thinking you're wheat when you're actually a weed. One last thing is important as I think we talk about fruit. You'll notice in verse 28 of this parable, the servants of the master, look at it. It says, he's, the servants said, do you want us to go and gather them? The servants wanted to go and uproot the weeds immediately when they saw the weeds and the wheat. But Jesus doesn't let them. The master doesn't let them. In fact, he waits and brings in someone more qualified to distinguish between the two. And I believe this is a subtle warning for us as Christians. Because let me tell you what happens a lot of times, and I've seen it happen in churches all over the place. Christians become the judge, jury, and executioner of everybody else. It's just true. And this text is just a small warning for us to see that there are times where we don't know everything. We are not qualified to judge the heart of somebody else. But let me tell you this, Christians are called to examine fruit because you see what the servants did. They said the fruit's not right. Something's wrong here. So in short, as Christians, we are to correct, we are to encourage, we are to rebuke, and we are to teach people when their fruit appears to be false. But we must possess a little bit of humility and realize that we are not qualified to make determinations about some people's hearts. There's just times where you don't know. Now, that, don't, that does not mean, as I just said, we don't address sin in people, who are, especially people in the church, because we are called to look at fruit. We live in accountability as Christians because we love. But we have to live with humility and say we're not in the seat of God. So that's the importance of fruit. Now I want us to keep on going. Now we're going to get to the main point of this parable. The main point of this parable is the reality of judgment and eternity. That's something for all believers to know. Because a lot of times when people read the Bible, they make too much out of stuff. A lot of times there's just one or two main points to a parable. And so when you're reading a parable, you've got to get to the bottom of it and see what the main point is. And Jesus makes clear that the main point in this parable is the reality of judgment and eternity. Look at verses 30, uh, 39 through 43. This is what it says. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus makes clear this is the main point. I want you to understand this. And the first thing that becomes clear when Jesus says this is the main point is that there is a coming day of judgment. You clear with that? There is coming a day of judgment when Christ will himself send angels and they will separate the good from the bad. On that day, there will be no hiding your sin. There will be no covering things up. God will look down and through Jesus Christ, who the Bible says will come to judge, he will judge us. We will stand before him as a judge. 
And now, we live in a society in a day and age where people don't like to think much about God as judge. We like to think about God as Father. We like to think about God as love. We like to think about God as forgiveness. But the Bible says that God is also judge. And there is coming a day where every soul who has ever lived will stand before him in judgment. This is a biblical reality. If you've got a Bible, you, don't have, you can look this up later, but I don't have time to look at it right now. But go read Revelation 20. It's a portrait of what's going to happen on the last day. And the Bible says that God will separate everybody between him, and there's going to be two groups of people, those whose names is in the Lamb's Book of Life and those whose names are not. And those who know Jesus Christ and have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life will go to heaven, and those who do not will go to hell. And that's, all, that's the next thing that Christ teaches us about here. He teaches us about the reality of two separate places where people spend eternity, one called hell and one called heaven. Now, I want us to spend some time here this morning because we really need to look into this because if you're like me, you grew up in church and your whole life you've heard about hell right you've probably heard about hell in some ways that are good and some ways that are bad sometimes you've heard about hell as a right as a rightful uh, truth that's in the bible sometimes you've heard about hell as a scare tactic that a preacher's put out there at you because you don't he don't he wants you to be saved and raise your hand and come down to the altar and say a prayer let me tell you something this morning we're not going to talk about hell this way we're going to talk about it as as Jesus really describes it. So look, let's, let's spend some time here and let's see what Jesus says about hell. Look at what the first thing he says about hell is in verse 30, 41. It says this, The Son of Man will send angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreaking and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus teaches us that the sons of the devil go to hell. That is people who have the works of the flesh, people who have never bowed their knee to God and his authority, people who live their lives not caring about God, go to hell. Jesus also makes clear this is going to be a place of intense suffering. Now, I want to make clear, I'm not, I'm not throwing this out there to you to scare you. I'm throwing this out there to you so you will know what is in the Bible. He makes this a, clear that it's a place of intense suffering. Christ calls hell the fiery furnace. Fire produces some of the most intense pain known to the human body. And here Christ is telling us that hell will be a place of fiery torment. Not for a day, not for a month, not for a year, not for a decade, not for a century, not for a millennium. Hell will be a place of fiery torment forever. Revelation describes it as a lake of fire and sulfur. There will be torment day and night forever and ever. Jesus further describes hell as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The misery in hell will be so great that the constant state of emotion is weeping. You get that? People forever weep because they hate they're there, but yet they put themselves there by the sin. People will be so full of anger, wrath, and misery in hell that they will constantly gnash their teeth. It's a sign of pain. It's a sign of suffering. When you ground your teeth, when you, sign your, when you gnash your teeth, you're either angry or you're hurting. And people in hell are probably going to be both. This is heavy. There's a real place called hell, and some of you will die and go there. Some of the people in this room will die and go there. The teaching of the Bible is that if you sin against God, you deserve to go to hell. Now get that. Sometimes we picture hell as God's a cruel God. So what he does is he just sends people who he's mad at to hell. The teaching of the Bible is that if you sin against God, you deserve hell. The way I've explained it to you before is when you sin against somebody important, you go to prison. When you sin against Trump, you're going to get the death penalty. When you sin against God, you're going to go to hell. The sin you commit is uh, the crime, the punishment you receive is directly proportional to the sin you commit. Does that make sense? You sin against the president, you're going to jail. You sin against God, you're going to hell. And you deserve it. You may wonder why preachers can preach week after week and be so passionate. I, people, people ask some stuff like that. And can I just be honest with you? This is why. It's because we don't want sinners to go to hell. We want you to be saved. If you're here this morning, I want you to be saved. And the, this morning, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the judge, stepped off of the judge's bench and went to the cross to be your savior. Hear me this morning. You are a sinner and you are going to die and go to hell, but you don't have to. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from sin and hell. Now all that he asks is that you live your life for him. Bow your knee in faith, in repentance, and say Jesus is Lord. That's what he says. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher. He used to describe the torments of hell. 
is lasting forever this way. He used to tell people that hell would be so long that if you can imagine a bird flying from seacoast to seacoast and picking up one grain of sand and flying back to the other seacoast and dropping it and going back and getting another grain of sand and dropping it, that the bird could clear the beach of every grain of sand and fill up the other side and and hell and eternity would have only just begun. You can be saved today, though. You don't have to die and go to hell. Some people are going to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins, and they'll go to heaven. Look at what Jesus says about heaven in verse 43. i got to run here. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. I am not entirely sure what this means, if I can be honest with you. It says the righteous will shine like the sun, shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You know, the Bible sometimes is kind of cryptic about heaven. I can't make heads or tails of it sometimes. Maybe I'm not smart enough. But can I just say that shining like the sun in the kingdom of your father, does that not sound pretty awesome? I mean, can we agree that it sounds, it sounds pretty great? And the best part of it is that we're going to be spending eternity with our father. I found a third grade journal that I was forced to keep uh, for Miss Angie Brantley's third grade class the other day. I found it. My grandma gave it to me and was like, you need to read some of these things. And in that journal, I wrote about... I wrote about things like uh, if I had a girlfriend one day, my mama was going to have to like her because if not, she had to go. And I wrote, about, I wrote about friends and I wrote about days at the beach. But one thing stuck out to me as I read it and I knew I was going to preach this text. I wrote about a day that I went fishing with my dad. And at the end of that day, I described we caught big fish and little fish. I mean, this is a third grade mind here. I don't know what I was thinking. But at the end of the, end of the day, end of the journal, I wrote this was the best day of my life. Do you know why it was the best day of my life? It wasn't because I was fishing. It wasn't because I was a, a sportsman angler. It was because I had spent the day with my dad. And Christians, so often what we forget is that the heaven of heaven is heaven is heaven because Jesus Christ is there. Heaven is heaven because God our Father is there and we will spend eternity with our Father. Some people don't want to go to heaven. Some people, heaven sounds so boring. It's because God's not your Father. Because I love spending the day with my dad. And sometimes we talk about heaven like it's a consolation prize. It's, it's just a place you go when you don't want to go to hell. And it's, it's not as bad as hell, but let's be honest, it's going to be boring, right? That's how we talk about, well, you've you got to go to heaven if you don't want to go to hell. That is not heaven. Heaven is the place where we will shine like, a, like the sun in, the, in relationship with our Father forever. Last thing I want you to see this morning from this text is the reality of God's patience. God's patience. Jesus teaches us about the reality of God's patience in this story. I want you to notice that in this story, the servants wanted to go to the master immediately and uproot the weeds. And you got to know a little context for what Jesus is doing here. See, when Jesus came on the scene, people expected the Messiah when he came to bring immediate judgment. That the Messiah was going to roll in and he was just going to kick butt and take names and everything was going to be laid flat and Israel was going to be on top again. That's what they thought. But when Jesus came, that didn't happen. Jesus came preaching a message of repentance and faith. He said, believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's giving them a little story. These servants want to go and pull the weeds up immediately. They want judgment immediately. And what Jesus is saying is that God is patient. You see, some of you, you need to understand this this morning because God's patience is personal toward you. Many of you have been continually putting Christ off week after week every every time you come here. Many of you have been putting Christ off your entire life, yet God has not killed you and sent you to hell. He's been patient with you. He is seeking you. He is waiting. Because although some of you have been evading God, He is waiting for you to come to the end of yourself and realize your desperate need for Him. Although some of you live on in sin, God is patiently waiting for you to repent today. And I believe that today is the day some of you realize that you're a sinner. If you're honest, your life is defined more by the the fruits of the flesh than it is by the fruits of the Spirit. However, God in His patience has left heaven and come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ the Son. Christ then went went to the cross to pay the price for your sin. Your penalty, Christ paid it. 
that on the third day, Christ burst out of the grave, proving to all the world that His blood was sufficient to appease God's wrath toward you. Get this. The, Jesus Christ dying on the cross was Him writing the check for your righteousness. Jesus Christ rising from the grave was the check clearing the bank. You're good is what that resurrection proves. And Easter's coming, folks. Some of you, today is the day you realize that you need that gift of salvation. And, you, and if that's you, I want to ask you, will you come down to the altar? Gresham's going to play a song here for us and, or play some music for us. And we're going to have a time of invitation. This altar is going to be open. But if that's you and you realize today is the day I need that, I'm going to be standing right over here. Some people from the prayer team are going to be standing right over here. Will you come to me and will you come to the people on that prayer team and pray with us? Please, don't leave thinking you're a, a wheat when you're a weed. I want to close with this. Three, three things to, that we need to do as we leave from here. First, if you're a Christian, realize that you're in a battle with a very real enemy. Stop going through life as if you're on a stroll and get in the fight. Wake up tomorrow morning and realize that this is a fight. Second, examine yourself. Examine yourself here today. Ask yourself, what kind of fruit is my life producing? Is it the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit? And if you are a Christian, and those, those fruits of the Spirit, man, they're just barely budding. Why don't you come down to this altar today and pray and ask God to produce in you more works of the Spirit, more fruits of the Spirit. As I prepared this week, that's what God laid on my heart. Dallas, ask me to do more and I will do more. Dallas, you can produce the fruits of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives within me. Third, realize this. The reality of judgment and eternity let that motivate you to be intentional about sharing the gospel with those in your life who are going to die and go to hell. I don't understand how we can have the best news in the world, Christians, and keep it in our pocket. This morning, um, my wife didn't get much sleep last night, and Danny was kind of being bad, so I woke up with her, and I went in to the, uh, to the living room, and I turned on Normally, I don't turn on TV very much in the mornings, but this morning, I just wanted to see who won a couple of the Final Four games last night. And one of the things that came on my screen the time I turned it on was a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. They were, they were in the camera, and they were losing their minds. I mean, they were just going crazy. They had good news. But in that moment, I realized I was going to come here today and preach a gospel that was infinitely better than a North Carolina Tar Heels win. And most of us are not as passionate as about that gospel. Don't put the gospel in your pocket as you leave. So I'm going to pray for us and this altar will be open and, and we'll do work with God and then we'll close. Thank you, God. Lord, I love you so much. God, I pray that uh, you use me however you want to, God. I Lord, humility is a posture we walk in, dear God, and I pray that I would walk in it better and better, God, and that you would be magnified through this preaching, God. Use the ramblings of a foolish man to glorify yourself. And I just pray that even right now, as I'm praying, that people would come to the altar and do work with you. God, you're a glorious God. Let your name be lifted high in the next few minutes. In Christ's name I pray.